do think that God wants to meet us this morning and really just build fresh faith in our hearts as we consider just his providence and history and what he would have for us to learn. And yes, we are branching out. That is a blue background with orange letters. So we are grateful there. Well, church, let's pray together as we start. Oh, Father, we, Lord, we give you thanks for the work that you did Lord, for the work that you've been doing throughout all of church history, but particularly this morning as is appropriate, Lord, we give you thanks for the work that you were doing, Lord, in your church 500 years ago to bring about this Protestant Reformation. Lord, we pray that as we talk about that this morning, Lord, that you would, as I said earlier, just build fresh faith in our hearts, Lord, that we would just leave encouraged by your love and your care for your church. And Lord, in everything that flows from that. So meet us this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as Tab said, this Tuesday, October 31st, marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That's the day, as he said, that kind of was the tipping point for the starting of what we now call the Protestant Reformation. That was the day where he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. You know, and I'm not sure about you, uh, but for me, with the separation of time, I mean, that's 500 years ago, it can be really easy for me just to, to kind of gloss over or just kind of miss the importance of this event. I mean, I can just think, yeah, that's so great that that happened 500 years ago, but what does that, what does that really matter for me right now? not sure if, if that's something you've thought as maybe the blog sphere has just exploded over the last month with stuff about the Protestant Reformation. You might even be tired of hearing about it by now. But we just wanted to, to take a moment to take this Sunday morning to make sure that we're appreciating the, the importance of this history for our present. We want to make sure that we are appreciating all that God did in his church 500 years ago and that we might see the importance and the impact that that has on our lives today, right here, and right now. And so as we, we move forward, we're going to progress in, in, in three categories as we think about the, the importance of what happened 500 years ago with your life today. And so first we want to see the setting of the Reformation we're going to see its spark. And then lastly, we're going to see the significance of it for our lives today. And so first, the setting of the Reformation. As we consider the Reformation, I think it's important for all of us just to, to know and remember that this just didn't come out of nowhere. It's not as if 500 years ago tomorrow, October 30, 30th, 1517, everything is fine. Everything is, is hunky-dory in the church. No one has any problems at all. And then, bam, October 31st, 1517 happens, and, and all of a sudden, Martin Luther receives this grand revelation that, oh, no, something's wrong. We're, we're off the tracks here. That's, that's not what happened at all. But Martin Luther, but, but the Reformation simply reached its tipping point with Martin Luther, him nailing this 95 thesis. That, we can see that as the tipping point of the Reformation. But in reality, for at least 125 years before Martin Luther would even think about writing his 95 theses, there had been voices calling out for reform from within the medieval Catholic Church. 
In, in light of the, the moral and doctrinal heirs of the medieval church at the time, there were, there were priests and professors, people like John Wycliffe, John Huss, and many others who, who we call the pre-reformers today. There were many of them who were, were crying out for reform from within the church as they longed to see their church return to the glory or their, their ideal picture that they would have seen in the New Testament times. I mean, John Wycliffe was so important that we look back to him and we call him the morning star of the Reformation. And just, just one caveat here as we continue, I think it's important and helpful for us to keep in mind as, as we're talking about the, the Roman Catholic Church here, as that's going to come up in my sermons here, it's important that we keep in mind I'm talking about the medieval Roman Catholic Church I'm not talking about the Catholic Church of today. And just consider morally speaking, as we think about just the rampant corruption that was inside the church at the time, a lot of Roman Catholics today would look back on that and say, yeah, that was bad. That was no good. That's not something that, that Protestants are alone in looking back. The, the Catholic Church of today has looked back on that time with, with many of the same conclusions that the Reformers had and were calling for. And just as we think about the, the moral corruption, it was really the moral corruption in the church that started much of what would happen. In the, the medieval church, it was common for, for a priesthood, for the church office, to be sold to the highest bidder. Whoever could come up with the most money, they were going to be the one to get that church office. In fact, even just the events that led to Martin Luther even hearing about indulgences or John Tetzel, that was all because this guy wanted to get his third bishopric. He wanted to have three, he wanted to be the bishop of three towns. I mean, it wasn't something that, uh, that that's not going on in the Catholic church today. And even then, as well as the, the humanists were quick to point out with, the, a lot of the continuing on like the moral trajectory, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for priests who had, had vowed this uh, vow of celibacy to often have concubines on the side, just open, out in the open. I mean, there, there was moral corruption going on. The monasteries of that time that were once the exemplary pictures of, of the normal Christian life, they had traded study and meditation for gluttony and licentiousness. They had just so devolved from the, the pictures of these monasteries that we saw in the early church. And so it was this, this moral corruption in the church at its head that really led a lot of these pre-reformers to start questioning the authority of the church, to start questioning the nature of the church. And doctrinally, I think there were, there were two main errors that we see being spoken out time and time again, specifically from John Wycliffe and John Huss. First, the, the first error was that they had saw that the Pope and the Catholic Church had set their authority and their teaching on equal par with Scripture. They had come to say that the, the decrees of the council, whatever the Pope said, was on equal footing. It was on equal authority with the church. And against this, those like Wycliffe and Huss, Huss taught that it was the Bible alone that was the sole authority. They weren't against the church having teachings. They weren't against the councils. But they were against the church saying that their, that their words were on equal authority with the Scripture. You know, for John Wycliffe, he just had the, this belief in the sole authority of Scripture that led him to do something that hadn't been done in a thousand years in the church. And that was to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. 
up until the time of John Wycliffe in the 1400s, the Bible had not been in the people's common language for a thousand years from when Jerome had last translated the Vulgate in Latin. See, the Reformers understood the importance of getting the Bible back into the hands of the ordinary people, the common people like me and you. Church, let's not, take for, let's not take the privilege of having the Bibles in our own language for granted. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to not have the Bible in your own language? I, I just think of even that Psalm 46 that Tab was reading earlier. Just how many of you has that psalm been a comfort to in times of distress, in times of trial? Just think, 500 years ago, you would have not had those words to look to, to find comfort in. All of these great doctrines, these words of comfort that we just take for granted, that we can easily take for granted, the people didn't have that. So I think here's a takeaway for all of us. Church, treasure your Bible as precious. It's a precious thing for us to have the Bible in our own language. Let's not take that for granted. The second major error that the pre-reformers saw in the medieval church was just their belief in really the doctrine of the church. In the medieval church, they just believed that by being a member of the visible church, by coming to church, by taking the sacraments, by, by being baptized, all of that just made you a Christian. You see, the church had come to believe that through its exercise of the sacraments, these are, these are the practices that are meant to, re, to remind us of God's grace. Here today, we, we look at the sacraments in our church as baptism and the Lord's Supper, these things that he's given us to remind us of our great salvation. The church, the medieval church, had taken those and had, had twisted them to be means of salvation, that you had to come to them to get salvation. If you didn't come and get baptized, if you didn't come and do penance, then there was no salvation for you. And so they had, had come to see themselves as the, the, grant, the, the grantor and the guarantee of your salvation. And especially this was true for the priests and the other church leaders. They just believed by being this priest, by being a bishop, you were guaranteed salvation. But Wycliffe, and especially John Huss, they just rejected this teaching outright. They stated that even the Pope himself had no guarantee of salvation just because he was the Pope. You can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> and, and as we, we see, in 1415, both Wycliffe and Huss were condemned as heretics. In fact, the Catholic Church disliked Huss so much that they actually, he had died 30 years before this, they actually dug his bones out of the ground and burned them because they just did not like his teachings. That was how much they disliked what he was teaching. And so this was the setting of the Reformation. The moral, there was moral corruption in the church that led people to question the nature of the authority of the church and even the nature of salvation. So now we're going to see the spark of the Reformation. As we've already mentioned, it was almost 500 years ago today, on October 31st, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And it was this event that put fire to the kindling, that started a fire that couldn't and wouldn't be stopped throughout Germany and throughout all of Europe. I mean, this was the act that pushed over that first domino that led to that, you know, the inevitable effect where one domino falls after the other. This is that event, and I think it's helpful for us to see it in that. Luther didn't, didn't come out of nowhere, but he was falling on the heels of those who had gone on before him. And this event didn't start the Reformation, but it sparked the Reformation. 
For Luther, just a little bit of background info, um, because of his, his father's wealth, he, like many others of his day, were on a, a career path for, to be a lawyer. He had done all the necessary schooling to become a lawyer, when one day in 1505, he is walking about town, and he gets caught in this fierce thunderstorm. In fact, lightning, well, tradition has it that lightning knocks a tree down a few feet from him, and it just scares the living daylights out of him. It leads him to cry out to St. Anne. He, he cries out, he says, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. As you well know, time would have it, he would, he would survive the storm. And two weeks later, he would enter an Augustinian monastery where he would tell his friends, you see me today and never again. It was at this time as he, began, as he became familiar with the teachings of the church, as he, he rooted himself in what it meant to be a monk, that he really became, became aware of his struggle with spiritual doubts. Luther was plagued with a sense of his own sinfulness, and he struggled to know how can sinful man be right with a holy, just God? And this just really plagued him. It would send him into bouts of depression for weeks where he would just be, be unable to function because he was just so weighed down with the sense of his own sinfulness. And in his mind at the time, this heavy justice of God. Well, following the teaching of the church that he knew at the time, if he was to be made right with God, then he had to, to just commit himself to the sacraments of the church. He had to commit himself to the practices of the church. And so that's what he did. Just time and time again, he would, he would actually go into the confessional and he would be there for hours confessing every single last sin. I mean, tradition has it that the priest would hate to be the one in there listening to him because he would go on forever and ever, really, I mean, eternally scared he would forget to confess something, that he would not do penance for the right sins, that he would suffer. I mean, he was plagued with spiritual, spiritual doubt. Well, it was really the spiritual doubt that caused his successors to send him to Rome in 1510, where he would, was told to, to climb, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, the, the Scala Sancta, the, the holy stairs. Uh, tradition has it that these were the stairs that Christ ascended before Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Well, these, these stairs were said to have been moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And the, the medieval church taught that any person who climbed these stairs on their knees would receive forgiveness of sins. So his superiors, thinking this was going to be the thing that would finally do it for him, send him all the way to Rome. But Luther, in typical Luther fashion, wasn't content to just go up knee by knee every single stair. But he would go up one step and he would recite the Lord's Prayer before kissing the step and ascending the next step. And he would do this step after step, sure that he would finally receive the peace with God that he had been longing for. Can you just picture him doing this? Well, unfortunately for Luther, when he gets to the top, he turns around and he looks out at just the debauchery of Rome and the Catholic Church at the time. And he just, he, he questions to himself and he just says, who knows whether this is true? And he leaves Rome even more depressed than he was before. This is a man searching for peace with God, willing to do anything possible to find it, even climbing stairs on his knees in the hopes that he might find peace with God. 
and he left feeling no closer. It was after this experience that he was given a, a teaching position in Wittenberg that would send him from where he had been before to Wittenberg, where he would teach in the University of Wittenberg until really his, his dying day. And it was here when he became this professor that he was able to devote the majority of his time to studying and answering, to trying to find the answer to this one question that had just plagued him, that had consumed him. How can a holy, how can a sinful man be made right before a holy God? And in the following years, he would teach through Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. So you just kind of sit back and you just have to laugh and just chuckle to yourself. Is there a better reading list for someone struggling with, for someone struggling with this question, desiring to be right with God? I, I can't think of three better books to go and study than those three. And here in God's providence, he would be leading him here. Now, it was this time, five years into his struggle, he had been in Wittenberg since 1510, five years into this struggle, that he hears of this man named Tetzel, who has come onto the scene. He had been sent on official church business to sell indulgences. It's important to know what these are. These indulgences were slips of paper that had been impressed with the seal of the Pope that guaranteed the release from purgatory for one's family members. In Catholic theology, after death, and this is the Catholic teaching today, after death, people don't go straight to heaven. But they go to a place called purgatory, where they are there to pay the penalty for, their, for the temporary punishment of their sins before they are able to then move on to heaven. And, and no one, there's no official church teaching on, on how long that is, how long that takes. But by buying these indulgences, you could take time off. And if you were willing to pay the right amount of money, you could take all of the time off for a family member in purgatory. And so, but the interesting thing with Tetzel is that he wasn't just given authority to sell indulgences for other people. But for the first time that we're aware of, he was given authority for you to buy your own indulgences for yourself. The church was in that much need of money that they were now allowing people to buy the forgiveness of sins for themselves. I mean, I can almost imagine, just picture, you know, Tetzel giving his sales pitch. And he was a gifted salesman, let me tell you. You can actually go home and read some of the sermons that he would give. Um, and you can just imagine the point where he gets there, and in the middle of his sales pitch, he would go, but wait, there's more, you know? It's not just now you can buy it for your family, but if you call in the next five minutes, you know, you can, you can buy salvation for yourself. Not buying salvation, but you can buy time off of purgatory for yourself. Upon seeing, it's actually, yeah, so which, which the popular rhyme, you might have even heard it over this last month, but the, the popular rhyme, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I mean, these guys would go saying that. They would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Upon seeing this, Luther becomes enraged. I mean, Luther is filled with a righteous indignation here. This event, more than any other, just opens his eyes to the depravity of the Catholic Church. Here they are taking, of those, taking advantage of those less fortunate, playing on their fears and using them to manipulate the people to give them their money. Just hear what Tetzel would say as he would travel from town to town. I was just struck by this. This is he, he wrote sermons that he would give to his followers so they could go from town to town. 
doing the same thing. And here's just a snippet from one of them. He would say, friends of this town, you have heard how your loved ones suffer in purgatory. You have heard their cries. The flames have reached up and licked your very own boots. How shamefully you go about your business. You spend your money on every little trifle. And oh, how your loved ones suffer. Imagine what it would have been like to hear this. Put yourself in their shoes. Here you are being told that your loved ones, Aunt Sally and Uncle Joe, they are suffering in purgatory. And now for the right price, for the right price, you could free them and guarantee yourself that you would never experience this. And as the money would pour into the coffers from those less fortunate, as they were being taken advantage of. This event outraged Luther so much that he takes pen to these 95 theses, hoping to spark an academic debate. Following the practice of his day, anytime you wanted to debate something, you would essentially sit down, write out all the points that you wanted to dispute. You would nail it to a public door, almost, in, almost like a messaging forum today. You would, plug, you would nail it up there and basically saying, come and get me. Anyone who wants to argue these points right here, just come, come read them and, and we'll debate. Um, he wasn't looking to, to provoke a populist movement when he did this, but he was just wanting to spark academic debate so that he could begin to talk about this great doctrine of the justification by faith that he had, he had just been opening the door to discovering. But to his surprise, a copy of these 95 theses had gotten, had gotten into the hands of a printer in town who made sure that, these, that copies of these 95 theses were printed and spread throughout all of Germany and throughout all of Europe. I mean, without YouTube, Twitter, or Snapchat, Luther became a hero overnight. And out of this, we see that the Reformation was born. Just as you, you step back, as you think about all of these events, for me, I was just blown away by the providence of God in all of this. Just think about all of the things that God orchestrated to bring about this event that would set fire to all of Europe and that would change our lives even here right now. He used a storm to drive Luther to a monastery. He opened the door for Luther to get a job in a school where he would study through Romans and Galatians just as he was struggling to understand how he, someone can be right with God. In the years before this, really leading up to this, he used the humanist movement and especially its leader Erasmus to bring about this, this groundswell among those in the, the academy who were desiring to get back to the sources. It was this desire that led Erasmus in 1516, one year before Luther would write his 95 Theses, to publish and make popular uh, the Greek translation of the New Testament. Up until this time, without the, the aiding of the Gutenberg press that came a half century earlier, relatively few people had, had access to the Greek New Testament. And now because of Erasmus translating this and it getting out, almost every single seminary professor or teacher at this time would have had easy access to this doctrine or to this document. And lastly, he used an, a likely unconverted monk, Luther, to light a match that would spark the Reformation. God did all of that. I hope that is that faith building for you? I mean, I hope you find that encouraging this morning. Just a, a wonderful picture of how our God is always at work orchestrating, event, orchestrating events to bring his purposes to past. And church, 
God didn't stop working 500 years ago. He is still sitting on his throne, and he is still ruling over our presence. And he rules over your presence. He is at work in your life right now, bringing his purposes to pass. I know that for many of you, you guys are walking through difficulties right now. You're walking through, through times of trials. Well, in the midst of what you're experiencing, I hope that you can look back and see what God did 500 years ago and find faith that he is at work in your life right now, using whatever events are going on in your life, whatever circumstances you're experiencing, he is using those to bring his purposes to pass. So church, take comfort and know that God is still at work. He's still providentially ruling over all of history. Now before we move on, I think it's just just helpful for us to, to make sure that we don't put Luther on a pedestal or, or attempt to, to idolize him. The Reformation of all things is meant to point us to God and to make much of his grace, not to make much of Martin Luther. You know, although, he, although Martin Luther was used by God to spark the Reformation, he, like you and me, was a fellow sinner. And just like you and me, he had blind spots in his life. And nowhere is this more apparent than in his anti-Semitism. That is just uh, not to be overlooked, and it's, uh, um, we, we should grieve over his views. Um, I mean, this is seen most clearly in, in the work that he wrote called On the Jews and Their Lives. This is three years before his death, where he advocated a variety of radical positions against the Jews, such as setting fires to their homes and synagogues, confiscating their property, destroying their religious texts, and forbidding rabbis from teaching their faith. In fact, Luther, it even has it that Luther blamed the Jews for the heart attack that he had that would eventually cause his death. And for these things and others, we should be careful not to make too much of Martin Luther. Yes, we do want to give thanks for him. We want to give thanks for his courage and his conviction that was put on display 500 years ago. But more than being thankful for him, we want to be thankful for God, who uses sinners like Martin Luther, sinners like you and me, to accomplish his purposes in the world. So we've seen the setting and we've seen the spark of the Reformation. So now we just want to turn and see its significance for our lives. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the importance of the five key teachings of the Reformation, the the five solas. And so we're going to touch on the impact and the importance of all of those. This morning, I wanted to draw our attention to, to two other applications of the Reformation to our lives. And it's how we think about the church and how we think about ourselves. First, and how we think about the church, it's from the Reformers, uh, primarily Martin Luther and the work of uh, John Calvin. He was uh, the great Reformer from Geneva, Switzerland, um, that we get our modern definitions of the church. It says, for them, there were two marks of a true church. It was that the word was rightly preached and that the sacraments were rightly administered. So those are the two marks of a church. And for us, I think it's helpful to think that while we as a church can certainly do many other things, we must do these two things. And to read those, the right preaching of the word and the sacraments being rightly administered, you might look at those and go, well, of course. Of course those are the marks of 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 a true church. But in the 16th century, this is far from what was happening in the church, and this was far from what was characterizing the normal church experience. So first, let's think about the right preaching of the word. 
It was for the first time in centuries with the advent of the, revolution, of the Reformation that people were able to hear the Bible being read and taught in their own languages. This, this, this truth was actually so important for John Calvin that he took to preaching two times every Sunday. He would preach every weekday morning, and he would preach three weekend afternoons. He would lecture three weekend afternoons. Preaching was that important to him and that important in the Reformation. And as a side note, it's probably because of people like Calvin who would, would preach for over an hour that it was during the time of the Reformation that pews became a staple in almost every church. Um, prior to this time, the people would come and just stand in the services for the parts that they were allowed to be included for as they really didn't have anything to listen to because there was nothing that they could understand. So the word of God was valued, the right preaching of the word, but the understanding of the sacraments was also transformed. For the reformers, there were only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, as they normally called it. And that is in distinction of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church at the time and today. But for, for, uh, for Luther and for Calvin, it wasn't just the number of sacraments that changed, but it was also the purpose of the sacraments. In the medieval church, the, it, it, when you would go and do the sacraments, they would be contributing to your salvation. You would be doing them to earn merits for your salvation. But for Luther and for Calvin, the sacraments were not means of earning our salvation, but they were rather inward comforting meanings of our assurance of salvation. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were tangible reminders to the people of God's promises to them in his word. And so practically speaking, because of the Reformation, as we come and gather together each Sunday, we take communion in both kinds. What that means is that we take the bread and the cup. Up to this point in the church, the lady were refused, could not have the cup. They were not allowed to drink the wine. They would only be given the bread, and at that, only, often only once a year on Easter. Some cities did it different, but for most of the people's experience, they would take communion once, and even at that, it wouldn't be all. It wouldn't be both kinds. It would be just the bread. But for us today, as we gather together, we receive the bread and the cup, and we can give thanks, and we can remember what God has done because of the Reformation. And perhaps the most dramatic change, it's not a mark of a true church, but I think we all appreciate that the most dramatic change to take place in the church services and in how we understand church is in the return of congregational singing to church. Prior to the Reformation, people didn't sing to church. You didn't come to church to sing, mostly because the people couldn't understand or speak Latin. I mean, can you imagine coming to church and not singing? For centuries, the normal person would come to church and just be a, a passive spectator. They would listen to the priest and other learned people chant in Latin and other languages that they didn't understand. But Luther, who wrote a number of great hymns, including that one that we sang earlier, he loved music. In fact, he said at one point to say that music drives away the devil and makes people happy. It's how you view music. It drives away the devil and makes people happy. And Calvin, too, loved singing so much in his church that he prioritized the creation of the Genevan Psalter soon after uh, coming to power in Geneva. And so we see that the significance of the Reformation first in how we view and understand church. 
But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it changed how we view, how we see ourselves. And this is in two ways. First, in Luther's teaching on the priesthood of all believers. In the, the medieval church, there was a very clear separation between the people and the priests, between the priests and the clergy and the laity. They had a very strong distinction to them. But for Luther, as he was able to read his New Testament, he just became convinced that there were not two classes of people, the spiritual and the common, but rather because of the work of Christ, all Christians are part of the royal priesthood, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2. Looking to other passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, Luther taught that God has given every single Christian gifts to serve one another for the building up the body of Christ. No longer were the priest and the clergy the ones who would be actively serving in church while we just passively showed up. But no, for Luther, every Christian was called to serve one another and to mediate God's presence in the world. And this teaching was absolutely transformative at the time of the Reformation. So do you guys see yourself as a priest? I know it can be an odd question. I mean, we don't use the word priest very often, and we're probably against saying the word priest. It probably smokes, you know, smokes negative emotions for us. But I think it's an important question for us because it helps us see that the work of the ministry doesn't belong to the pastors alone. The elders of Grace Church are not the only ones who are called to the work of the ministry. But Luther would have us see that God has called and gifted each one of you to serve one another in the body. God is building his church as each member does their work to build up his body. And, and thankfully, just to encourage you, this is, a, uh, this is a truth that I think you all have embraced and you guys are living out faithfully. You guys are aware of the ways that God has gifted you and the ways that he might have you serve one another. So church, just let us continue to grow in this area of ministering to one another. And so first, the Reformation changes how we see ourselves by, by demolishing this two-tiered structure between the priest and the people. But Luther would have us know that we're all priests now. But secondly, it changes the way that we see ourselves, particularly when we think about our vocations or about our, our callings that God has given to us. It was during the Reformation that the sacred-secular distinction was torn down also. At this time, there was, there was viewed holy work, and there was just common secular work. And if you weren't a member of the clergy, the work that you did wasn't holy. It wasn't important. But for Luther, he, would, he had the, uh, he just made, you know, the, these, these pithy stayings here where he would say that the baker, the farmer, and the candlestick maker, the work that they did was just as holy as the priests. Calvin would say that the work of the baker, the priest, and that proverbial candlestick maker was actually more important than the work of the priest because they were at work in the community serving one another, tangibly dealing with the elements of God's creation. So there was no longer, the, the holy work was no longer restricted to the clergy. Is that how you see your work now? Do you see your vocation and your work as, as holy as Luther would have it? I know that for many of us, it's hard as we, as we think about our work just to consider how in the world could this possibly be considered holy? I'm just mindful of, of Donna at home struggling with three kids and how she can just think, how in the world is anything that I'm doing here holy? 
Maybe as you go into your office and punch the clock from nine to five, you're just tempted to think, what is going on here? I mean, perhaps you're, more, you're, perhaps you're tempted to think that, that the work you do here on Sunday mornings or going to Bridge of Hope, the work that you do in your home group or in the youth group, you're tempted to think that's more important than anything you do to, to earn an income or to, to maintain your household. But it's at this point that Luther would remind us that we don't need to leave our jobs or our homes to go to the mission field or the monastery to serve God. Because for Luther, all of our work was holy. Because in all of our work, we have the opportunity to reflect our creator who has gifted us and called us. And we're given the opportunity to love our neighbors. And because our work is an example to reflect our creator, to love our neighbors, just think of the few examples that Luther would give. He would say that a mother provides food, clothing, and a well-cut home for her closest neighbors her children, and her husband. The cobbler. He would say that the cobbler provide, does the holy work because the cobbler provides quality footwear to his customers and a reasonable living to anyone that he might employ. The farmer, likewise, he supplies food for the entire community. The blacksmith forges tools that will enable his neighbor to work efficiently and effectively. Included in this, he says that the, that the pastor provides spiritual sustenance for the men and women in his congregation. And all of this is to be seen as holy work. And surely to this list, we could add the engineers, the scientists, the military service members, the police service members. Whatever you guys are doing, whatever calling God has given you, add that to the list. And that is a holy calling because in that you can reflect your creator who has called you and gifted you. And you can love and serve your neighbor. So we tend to, and that was just transformative. That would not have been on anyone's radar. In fact, the, the stay-at-home mom, you know, to talk anachronistically, or you know what the word was, or, the, or whatever they were doing, they would look back on that and they would, have, they would have felt confined. They would have said like, I am a lesser person because I am not serving in the clergy or because I am not serving in the monastery. But into this, Luther just blew up that dichotomy and just gave them meaning and purpose in their life by showing them that no matter what they did, they were serving God and reflecting him to their neighbors. So just let that build your faith. You know, I think that we can, we can tend to think that God calls people only to special tasks in spectacular ways. And it's true that God does do that sometimes. But I think we also need to hear the quiet call of God in the ordinary. To hear him speak to us in the day-to-day -day circumstances of our lives. For there, God is calling us to serve. Just listen to what Calvin has to say about the importance of all of our work. He says that no task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. Let that land on you. Your work is very precious in God's sight. No matter what God has called you to do, and certainly it looks different for everyone in different seasons, but whatever God is calling you to do, it is very precious in his sight. As we leave here this morning, as we head off to whatever God has called us to do, and it's going to look different for each and every one of us, just know that you are performing a holy task because of what God has called you to do. So now all of us do all of our work before the face of God. 
So this is the significance, just a, a small, minuscule significance of the Reformation, just a, a small sliver of how the Reformation impacts and influences our daily lives. Now we see and experience the church and ourselves differently. Certainly much more could be said here, just about the Reformation, its significance, all the details of what happened. We barely scratched the surface this morning. But I hope that even the, the briefest of brief overviews of the Reformation here, that it helps you just appreciate the work that God was doing 500 years ago and the way that it impacts your daily life, the way that it will change, Lord willing, the way we walk out of here this morning. And as we close our service this morning, we want to close our service by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. As I mentioned earlier, for the Reformers, the Lord's Supper was not a way to earn God's grace but the Lord's Supper is a, it's a sacrament, it's a means of God's grace to us in that it provides us the assurance of our salvation as it points us back to God and his promises. And this is what we want to do this morning. We spent, a, we spent a lot of time looking back on God's work 500 years ago in the 16th century. But more than that, we want to look back to his work in the first century. We want to look back to his greatest work his work in the life of Christ, who by his life, death, and resurrection has made it possible to solve the dilemma that, uh, that uh, Luther had. Luther wondered, how can a sinful person be made right with a holy God? And this morning, we want to celebrate that as we take the Lord's Supper and we look back and we realize that it's because of Christ that a sinner can be made right with a holy God. So as the ushers prepare to serve the elements, I just have two brief words of instruction. So first, for those who are here who are non-believers, who someone who is yet to trust in Christ, perhaps you're here and perhaps you can relate with Martin Luther. Perhaps you can relate with this spiritual doubt, wondering, wondering whether you are saved. If that's you this morning, I would just ask that you would let the trays with the bread and the cup pass you by. No one's here to judge you, but I would urge you to take Christ, to look to him, to know what he has done for you. And for the Christians here who will be celebrating together, just hold on to the bread and the cup as the, um, as the elements are passed and we'll celebrate together. Oh, Father, we do. We give you thanks for your great work. We give you thanks for your great work in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for the way that you've been at work in your church, preserving the purity of your church and the doctrine of your church. Thank you for the glimpse that we saw of that in the Reformation of Martin Luther. And we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to be at work in our midst. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.